Hello everybody and welcome back to part three of the three-part special, the A to Z of UK culture, UK and English culture. As you may recall from listening to the previous two episodes, we're going from A to Z in the alphabet and for every letter I'm giving you one to two, sometimes three if you're lucky, uh, special points and cultural points of interest, maybe famous people, landmark events, customs, anything of that nature. Now, we got up to Q last time, so we're going to start with Q. And Q, I mean, it is Christmas time, so this is on the mind, but I'm going to start with Quality Street. Now, quality is a frequently used British adjective, as in something has high quality, but actually often we say quality if something's really good and something's great. So maybe somebody falls over. And then everyone's laughing. You might say, ah, oh, that was quality. So it's a very popular adjective. Quality gear. Quality shoes. Quality street. Now, quality street are a box of chocolate. So they are a line of tinned and boxed toffees, chocolates and sweets. They were actually first manufactured by a company or a little independent company called Macintosh in Halifax, West Yorkshire in 1936 so that was where I was born so I was born in uh, Halifax didn't live there long mind you but nice little point there they are always in direct competition with Cadbury's Roses now Cadbury's Roses were released two years later in 1938 maybe you've heard of Cadbury's um, hopefully because in my opinion they're the best chocolate you can buy Quality Street are manufactured now by Nestle, so it's uh, always a big battle in the chocolate game between Nestle and Cadbury's anyway. Now, what makes up a Quality Street? So, within Quality Street there are 11, I'm going to say, yes, 11 different chocolates, and they're all different style and different tastes and textures. So, we have the orange crunch now this is sort of an orange octagon shape and this is an orange truffle with crunchy orange pieces so this one's a bit harder when you bite into it and you really do get that crunch seven out of ten next you've got the green triangle now the green triangle is smooth hazelnut flavor uh, center with a delicious milk chocolate triangle wrapped around it this one's also quite firm when you bite into it I'd give that one 7.5 out of 10. Strawberry Delight. Now, growing up, this one and the next one were always my favourite ones. Always used to love the strawberry and orange in a chocolate, which some people think is strange. Remember, my mum always told me that I'm the only one that loves these ones. So next, Strawberry Delight. So this is a soft strawberry fondant in the middle, and then it's wrapped in dark chocolate. And that dark chocolate really complements the, the sweet strawberry flavour in the middle. 9 out of 10 for me. Next you've got the orange cream. So imagine the Strawberry Delight's zesty brother. This is this one. So it's soft orange in the middle and then dark chocolate around the outside. Also 9 out of 10 for me. Love these two. They're quite sweet. You couldn't eat too many of them, but I do like them. Next you've got the caramel swirl. So there's runny caramel in the middle and then milk chocolate around the outside. I'm not a massive fan of caramel in general, or in chocolate. 5 out of 10. Next is the toffee finger. Now this is essentially just 
a long line of toffee dipped in a little bit of milk chocolate. Now this is better than the toffee coin they have, which is just pure toffee. So I'm going to give this one 6 out of 10, if you're in a toffee mood. Next is the pink fudge. So this is creamy fudge, much like the Cadbury's fudge, and then wrapped in milk chocolate. These are usually last in the box. Mm, average, 4 out of 10. Milk choc block. This is just a solid piece of creamy milk chocolate. Like I said, there's better milk chocolates for me. Cadbury's, Galaxy. So, not for me. 3 out of 10. The purple one. Now, this is a fan favourite from everyone, I do believe. So, this is purple wrapping. So, purple always looks royal. It's a, a whole roasted hazelnut in the middle with runny caramel around the outside and then milk chocolate shell across all of it. I did say I'm not really a fan of caramel, but this one is a lot better, I have to say. It's that nut in the middle. 7.5 out of 10, but this is one of the, the favourites. Toffee penny, just chewy toffee, no chocolate, not for me, 2 out of 10. Coconut eclair, got some rich chewy coconut in the middle, covered in milk chocolate. Mm, I could take it or leave it, as we say, which means I'm impartial to it. 4 out of 10. And the last one's a coffee cream. I don't remember ever having this. So, oh, it says only available in John Lewis and Waitrose stores for Christmas 2023. So that is a special edition that I've not had. But I love coffee, so that sounds right up my street, if you pardon the pun. Additionally, on Q, we have question time. Also, there's Prime Minister's question. Or Prime Minister's question time. Essentially, it opens the floor to the public and also other ministers in the House of Commons to ask questions to the Prime Minister. Question time is, asked, is allowing the public to ask questions, whereas Prime Minister's question time is where the other MPs, so members of Parliament, can ask the PM, the Prime Minister, questions. PM's questions is aired every Wednesday from 12pm to 12.30pm and you can watch this online if you wish. The session normally starts with a routine question from an MP about the Prime Minister's engagements. This is known as an open question and means that the MP can then ask a supplementary question on any subject. Whereas Question Time, the TV show, is a topical debate programme usually broadcast on BBC One at 10.45 at night every Thursday. So the panel on question time is typically composed of five public fig figures. They're not always members of parliament, but generally involved in politics. They're representative of different political parties across the series, so you won't just have five from the same party, and it should be a fair representation of the UK itself. Often there's high-profile journalists, authors, television and radio broadcasters and even some comedians join the panel who are fairly interested in politics. If you'd like to get a good feel for the current UK political climate, then I'd recommend watching Question Time and listening to some of the debates. So now we have R. I'm going to start with a stereotype, and that's R for rain. So contrary to popular belief, it does not rain every single day in the UK, as you may believe. However, if you're visiting the UK, it is advisable to bring an umbrella because we do have a fair amount of rain. 
English and British weather can be best described as temperamental, i.e. you don't know exactly what you're going to get. Even in historically warm months, it can still have heavy showers and rainfall. It can be said that we have maritime temperature. This means that it is mild with temperatures not much lower than zero degrees in winter and not much higher than 30 degrees in the summer. It also means that it is, it is damp and frequent to subject change. However, last year, as a lot of Europe had as well, we had a drought and it was the summer of 2022 and it's the hottest I've ever witnessed it in the UK. For example, in Reading, where I am, it reached 40 degrees one day in the summer in June. 40 degrees. I've never seen heat like that ever in the UK. And we did have a drought, so there wasn't much rainfall during the summer, which was very strange uh, for us as we're used to heavy rainfall all the time. However, if you are wondering the average annual rainfall in the UK, I've pulled up some stats here from 2017. You may think the UK will be number one. So this is millimetres of rain per year. Number one is Colombia, 3,240. Who else do we have? Costa Rica, 6, 2,926. Malaysia, 8th, 2,875. Singapore, 14th, 2,497. Philippines, 18, 2,348. As you can see, there's a bit of a pattern. These islands and these in the Pacific, the more tropical ones, get a lot more rain. So the UK is an island, so we do get a lot of rain as well. Jamaica, 30, 2,051. Now, I'm going to find the UK for you. Got to scroll all the way down. 74th, the UK, 1,220 millimetres per year on average. So, we're the 74th most rainy country in the world. You might be thinking, okay, so how about in Europe? So let's just work out where we are in Europe, because that is a good question. Okay, so I've got the stats up now. Number one, most rainfall per year in Europe, Iceland. Number two, most rainfall in Europe per year, Switzerland. Number three, most rainfall per year in Europe, Albania. Number four, most rainfall per year in Europe, Norway. Number five, most rainfall per year in Europe, United Kingdom. So there we go. We're the fifth most rainy per rainfall across the whole year in Europe. However, it might be worth checking how frequently it rains because this is per the amount of rain. So as you can imagine, countries in Asia where they have extreme downpours and it rains so, so, so much, they might only have that sort of a couple of times a month, whereas in the UK it might rain 12 days in the month. So that's a question worth considering. But overall, maybe not as rainy as you guys think, but still rains a lot. An additional one for R is Romans or Roman Britain. The Romans came to Britain 2,000 years ago and changed the UK, well, mainly England and Wales, extremely. Because remember, 
the Romans couldn't quite conquer the Scots, they were too strong and fierce. The Roman Empire made its mark on Britain, and even today you can find the ruins of Roman buildings, forts, roads and baths. For example, I was recently in Bath with my girlfriend, and there you can find the Roman baths. They're now a cultural heritage site, and they're fairly well preserved. So I'd really recommend, if you're in the UK, go and visit the baths in Bath. Really cool. Also, the Romans, they named a lot of cities and towns. For example, the River Don flows up north in Yorkshire, and Castor is the old Latin slash Roman for settlement or town. So Doncaster means settlement on the River Don, hence the name of the city, Doncaster. A little bit of interesting information for you there. Um, so Britain, not including Scotland, so remember that, was part of the Roman Empire for almost 400 years and divided England into four areas centred by the following towns. London, Chirenchester? Chiren I've never heard of that, so different name now. York and Lincoln. And by the time the Roman armies left around 410 AD, they had established medical practice, a language of administration and law, and had created great public buildings and roads. There's a famous saying that goes, all roads lead to Rome. And this is because the Romans were the pioneers of what we now have in the long straight roads that connect cities, towns, settlements. So the Romans were the kings at building long lovely roads. And in the UK you'll see plenty of long straight roads going through the countryside and that is undoubtedly a Roman road, or at least it used to be. The Romans did eventually conquer Scotland in 140 AD. However, after years of fighting and battling, with the Scots attacking the border, the Romans even built a wall across Scotland to stop the Scots coming in. Think Donald Trump, wall with uh, Mexico, but old-fashioned wall. And eventually in 401 after deaths AD, the Romans withdrew from Britain. And that's when the Anglo-Saxon migrants came, be began to settle, and that is the, the modern-day Brit descendant from the Anglo-Saxons, as we mentioned in the first part. For S, I have a few entries. I'm going to start quickly with Stonehenge as an honourable mention. So Stonehenge is the most famous prehistoric monument in Britain. It's a circle full of huge, massive stones. These stones are seriously about 12 foot, I don't know, if you use centimetres maybe, 300, 350 centimetres, so they're huge, and they were established and built around 5,000 years ago. Each stone was dragged into place, so it's quite remarkable to think how they made this structure. I was actually watching a documentary recently on Netflix by Graham Hancock, and he does lots of research into ancient civilizations and was there an ancient civilization, an advanced civilization before the Ice Age some 12,000 years ago. And this structure of Stonehenge reminds me of some of the structures he finds and analyzes, for example, in Malta, in Mexico. And these stones are all aligned in a circle, so it's like ceremonial, 
But then there's some stones in the middle that seem to be looking somewhere. And they seem to be looking somewhere in the sky. So that's how scientists can also help identify. So they can obviously analyse how old the rock is, but also essentially use computers to push the uh, universe back. And so if they were there 5,000 years ago, see where these rocks align with, which stars they align with. But please do Google Stonehenge. That's S-T-O-N-E-H-E-N-G-E. Lots of people see Stonehenge when they come to the UK. We have been there once. I think I went there on a school trip as well, so I would recommend that. Next for S, another one I'm going for St. George. So in the UK, we have St. George's Day that falls on the 23rd of April, and that's England's National Day. So I'm sure you've heard of St. Patrick's Day. That's the Irish National Day. Obviously, that's not British, but this is our equivalent for England. St. George is the patron saint of England. His emblem, a red cross on a white background, is the flag of England and also part of the British flag. If you look at the British flag, it's actually made up of all the flags of the United Kingdom together. You've got the red cross of England, you've got the blue and white uh, diagonal cross of the Scotland, you've got the flag of Northern Ireland on there too, making that Union Jack. And then Wales, you don't actually see the Welsh dragon on it, but we we just threw Wales in there somewhere. Poor little Wales. <laughs> so St George's emblem was adopted by Richard the Lionheart and brought to England in the 12th century. The king's soldiers wore it on their tunics to avoid confusion in battle. Now the famous legend and story about King George, sorry, St George, is that he was a dragon slayer. So... It's highly unlikely that he ever fought a dragon, and even more unlikely that he ever visited England, but despite this, St George is known throughout the world as the dragon-slaying patron saint of England. Now, we also have St Andrew, so St Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. St Andrew's Day is celebrated on the 30th of November every year. St Andrew's flag is also the flag of Scotland, so... I'm sure you can picture it, but if not, it's a diagonal cross of two white crosses on a nice dark blue background. St. Andrew was one of Christ's 12 apostles. Some of his bones are said to have been brought to what is now St. Andrew's in Fife during the 4th century. Since medieval times, the X-shaped cross upon which St. Andrew was supposedly crucified has been Scotland's national symbol. Additionally, Scotland is famous for thistle. Thistle is a prickly-leaved purple flower which was first used in the 15th century as a symbol of defence. So you may also see thistle on Scottish emblems and logos. I can think of Scotland rugby have a thistle on it uh, and that's why. Very prickly, sort of prickly we mean sharp, can, it's not soft uh, <laughs> of, a, of a flower. For T, we're going to start with three lions. So, three lions is a famous symbol of England. Richard the Lionheart, who ruled from 1189 to 1199, used the three golden lions, sometimes described as leopards, 
on their scarlet, which is a type of red, scarlet background as a powerful symbol of the English throne during the time of the Crusades. There's also famous songs where we sing three lions on a shirt, um, and that's sort of a football song. And also the, the football team are often referred to as the three lions. Also for tea, I'm going to go for Tower of London. For over 900 years, the Tower of London has been standing guard over the capital. The Tower of London was originally built by William the Conqueror following his successful invasion of England in 1066. Now, the Tower of London has fulfilled multiple purposes within British history. It's been a royal palace, a fortress, a prison, even a place of execution, an arsenal, which means the place where they keep guns and weapons, a royal mint, which means where they print money and make coins, a royal zoo, and also a jewel house. So it is said that the uh, the royal crown jewels are held at the Tower of London, or at least they used to be. It's probably most best famous as a prison. The prisoners would be brought via the river, that's the River Thames, from Westminster, where they would have been tried and crowds would wait on the riverbank to find out the verdict to see if they would be treated to that great treat of a spectacle of a public execution. That means the crowd gathered round and they wished that they would be executed. Back then, you didn't get much entertainment, I guess. The executioner then, with his long sharp axe, would stand behind the accused on the boat. If the accused was given the guilty verdict, he would point his axe towards the victim, and if not guilty, he would point it away. People knew that if found guilty, there would be a pu public execution 48 hours later. For you, I'm going to go with one I vaguely mentioned, but it's worth saying again. So the Union Jack. What's the Union Jack? The Union Jack is the flag of the United Kingdom. So whenever you hear the Union Jack, that's the United Kingdom flag, or the British flag, you may think of it. Very iconic flag, red cross in the middle, white cross diagonally for Scotland, also white behind the white crosses in the middle, and then red going in diagonally left, right, bottom left, bottom right. And then the background the same colour blue that Scotland have. It's sometimes called the Union flag as well because it symbolises the administrati administrative union of the countries of the United Kingdom. It is made up of the individual flags of the three of the kingdom's countries all united under one sovereign. England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, they're the three on the flag. Another one for you is University Challenge. Now this is one of the most famous quiz shows in the UK. It's been running for many, many years. So the first episode aired in 1962. It was aired up until 1987 before there was a, a brief hiatus, which means a break. And then it returned in 1994 with Jeremy Paxman. Jeremy Paxman, Paxman is probably the most famous host of the show. There's only been three hosts, with the latest host, uh, first host in this year actually. So that's sort of part of the, the charm, you, you recognise Jeremy Paxman voice. It's set up this way, so there's two teams of four. 
One four from one university, another four from another university. The quiz master, which was usually Jeremy Paxman, asks a question, an open question, open to the floor. Someone from each of the team has to buzz in. When they buzz in, you hear their name called and the university. For example, Richardson Queen's Belfast. It, the announcer always says it in this specific voice and then the camera pans over and goes to this girl or guy and then they have to answer the question. If they get it wrong, it gets passed to the other team and they can take their time, discuss it amongst each other and then come up with an answer. If they get it right, they'll get some bonus questions after. For each question they ask, answer, they get points and the aim is to get the most points within 30 minutes and that team wins. It's a simple premise, but the questions are incredibly hard. It's called University Challenge because they're mainly always PhD and older students who have been in academia for a long time. There's always quite a fun game to play when you watch it, which is try to get some answers right. But this can honestly be really hard. It's one of the hardest TV shows on, in TV, on TV, especially in the UK. Only a few more left and then we've covered everything A to Z on the surface level. So hang in there, not long left. So V is for Victorian or Victorian era. Or the Victorians even. The Victorians, who are they? So they lived over 150 years ago during the reign of Queen Victoria from 1837 to 1901. So fairly recent in the grand scheme of things. Victorian times simply mean during Victoria's rule the time Queen Victoria was on the throne, those 64 years. Now, the Victorian times weren't a great time for the average person. There was no electricity. Instead, we used gas lamps or candles. There were no cars. People walked, travelled by boat or train, or used coach horses to move from place to place, those with a bit more money. Now, the Victorian era is fairly famous in the UK. Britain managed to build a huge empire during the Victorian period. It was also a time of tremendous change in the lives of British people. In 1837, most people lived in villages and worked on the land, which means farming, agriculture. However, by 1901, most people had shifted and migrated to live in towns and offices, shops, and especially factories. They also call this the beginning of the industrial period or, or era. So during Queen Victoria's reign, it was a very famous and um, sort of important period because Britain became the most powerful and richest country in the world. Britain then had the largest empire that had ever existed and probably will exist for the rest of time, ruling a quarter of the world's population. Towns and cities got piped water, gas and by the end of the century, electricity. This meant that living conditions improved and population increased along with it. The number of people living in Britain more than doubled from 16 million to 37 million. However, of course, causing a huge demand for food, clout, clothes and housing. Factories and machines were built. Now, this is one of the most significant parts. These factories and machines were built to meet the demands of the people with new towns popping up and growing. Railways were also built. They were originally built to transport goods, so goods could freely go from A to B in quicker time. 
However, it also meant that people could travel upon them and travel easily around the country for the first time ever. Additionally, soldiers were at war all over the world during 1850 to 1880. It was a fairly tur turbulent time. For W, I have two. First is Westminster. Westminster is the main settlement of the city of Westminster in London, England. It is located near about the geographical centre of London. It extends from the River Thames to Oxford Street and has very has a lot of famous landmarks that tourists will love to see. For example, the Palace of Westminster, Buckingham Palace, Westminster Abbey, Trafalgar Square and the West End. So... Westminster is definitely the place to go if you're in London as a tourist. That's essentially the sort of centre where all the action is and where you'll get most of your touristy photos. Next for W we have Wimbledon. So actually the official title is Wimbledon Championships. It was founded in 1877 making it the longest and first tennis tournament of its kind. And it is also regarded as the most prestigious. It has been held at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club in Wimbledon, London since 1877 and is played on outdoor grass courts. Of course at Wimbledon all the competitors, all the tennis players have to wear full white. This is different to other tournaments. And it's famous to eat strawberries with cream whilst at Wimbledon drink, drink pims. There's a, a lawn outside that people sit on. And Wimbledon is the sort of place where Novak Djokovic won year after year after year after year after year. However, Roger Federer does hold the title for most men's singles. He has eight uh, men's single titles at Wimbledon, therefore making him probably the GOAT of Wimbledon. Now, as you can imagine, X and Z were fairly hard to think of um, words, cultural words for it. X, I've just gone, played it safe, X Factor. X Factor, you may have in, in your country, it's similar to The Voice or America's Got Talent, but it's solely singing. X Factor is one of the most famous TV shows in the UK. Um, and you may be aware that One Direction were formed on X Factor. So they entered as five five independent guys, and then the judges put them together to make this one group a One Direction. They didn't actually win, but obviously they're now global superstars. Also JLS, they were on X Factor. There's a couple of other big artists that won X Factor, but I don't really watch it, so I couldn't tell you anymore. But why I've gone for Yorkshire pudding? Yorkshire pudding is a baked pudding made from a batter of eggs, flour and milk or water. It's a British side dish and is fairly versatile depending on how big or small you make them. As a main course, it can be served with onion gravy. This is often paired with other components for the Sunday roast. It can also be filled with sausages and mashed to make a meal. Or you can also add sausages to the batter to make a famous British meal called Toad in the Hole. Toad in the Hole is one of my favourite British meals for sure. You get some nice tasty sausages, maybe with apple to give them more flavour. Then you make the Yorkshire pudding batter, put them in the batter and then in the oven 
serve it with some vegetables, maybe some roast potatoes, and of course, gravy, onion gravy. That's just classic British cuisine. Lastly, Zed. I could not think of anything for Zed, so I'm just going to go with this. Americans say Z. They say Z, so A to Z. We say Zed. Zed. So, in the UK, there are 328 places that have a Z in their name. And 14 of these have two Zs in their name. So there you go. 328 places, sort of villages, towns have a Z in their name in the UK. Not bad, right? So that was part three. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, this episode and hopefully you listened to them all and have found some new information. I've taught you a little bit about the UK, British customs and lifestyles. If you have any questions or any feedback, please don't hesitate to get into contact. My email is englishwithfraser at gmail.com. I'm going to start setting up more social medias and website so you'll be able to contact and find me in more places thanks for listening please do give it a five star review and if you think you've got a friend who may find this handy or useful please do share that with with them and i'd really appreciate that so that's all from me hope you enjoyed this episode and as always all the best and take care bye bye